All right, uh, if you'll take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10, and I would invite you, please, to stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, You have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not uh, your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Please be seated. So uh, last week we began our march through the solos of the Reformation by taking a look at Scripture alone, or sola scriptura, which is... Um, I would suggest to you uh, the first battleground uh, for the hearts of men was related to Sola Scriptura, where the devil comes to Adam and Eve and says, or Eve particularly, um, has God really said that? Questioning the authority of what God has said is that the beginning of our downfall as human beings and it continues to be at the foundation of every sin that mankind commits but here is yet another centuries-old debate in fact i think that i can make a case that this is the second oldest debate on record grace versus works grace versus works so our next solo that we're looking at is grace alone or sola gratia um, you might be thinking, okay, where, where's, where's that happening? Think about Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel. Think about their offerings. Do you remember what their offerings were? Abel brought a lamb of the flock, a blood sacrifice that uh, had to be vicariously, that blood was vicariously applied to his account. What did Cain bring? grain or fruits, vegetables, the produce of his hands. It's really interesting. Years and years ago, Karen and I uh, happened to be in Salt Lake City. We went by the visitor center there, and it was, this was many years ago. Um, actually, it was, before the, it was before we were married. I think it was, um, yeah. Yeah, so we walked into, uh, we were out ministering on a, a gospel team, and we walked in here, and here's a statue of an altar 
with uh, um, Adam and Eve and uh, were there and on the altar, on top of the altar, were fruits, vegetables, and all this stuff. And the lamb was predominantly sitting at the foot of the altar, alive and well. And when we asked them about that, uh, we said, how come you have the produce of the field on the altar when that's clearly not what the scriptures say uh, is to be done, but the lamb should be up there and oh, it was a lot of hemming and hawing around um, because basically they had turned it all upside down that their acceptance with God was based upon their works. Um, interestingly, fast forward what? 20 years? I don't know, something like that. Um, we showed up again and we wanted to go by and see that thing again and we asked about it. And amazingly, nobody had ever seen it. It had been removed. And... Um, when we finally found somebody that, oh yeah, I remember that, it's down in the basement. Uh, apparently, I think they'd had enough questions about it that they removed it. You know, this debate about grace versus works is something that has come up again and again and again throughout church history. We're going to see that this uh, this morning. Uh, but as you go through church history, the proponents for both positions tend to line up for the fray and they tend to go at it with each other and they tend to talk right around each other most of the time and just spill a lot of ink and a lot of, a lot of uh, hot air but not really accomplish too much. And one reason for this is because it is actually too simplistic to just boil this debate down to grace versus works. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. But this conflict swept across Europe. Um, it was an attempt uh, on the part of the reformers to, to regain that true faith that had been perverted and obscured. And that conflict that, that they, though they didn't really want it to be a conflict, but the, say the discussion that they started that ended up in many conflicts, leapt off of the springboard of reasserting the absolute authority of the scriptures and it was fueled by the necessity of getting to the heart of answering a central question how are we saved from our sins and the reformers resoundingly asserted that you are saved by grace God's grace alone now, if you're the sort of person that tends to glaze over when it comes to history, um, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> but we're going to get some history. Like we had some history last week, and uh, as I was thinking about it um, and making lots of quotes and so on, I'm trying really hard not to make this super academic. But at the same time, uh, as we go through the solas, they are so rooted in the historical context out of which they sprung. It's really essential to understand that context and what the debates were if you're really going to grasp of what we're talking about here. Because I grant you, um, there's, I don't think, well, there's verses that I can come to that say the same thing. But uh, 
you don't you notice that underneath each banner there is not a Bible reference where that that's a quotation from. Those are theological ideas and thoughts that sprung out of those theological debates that actually began quite a while before the actual Reformation and continue to be developed through the Reformation and since. But they express biblical truth that was in, that the, the, the individuals were attempting to bring to bear on the theological landscape in which they lived at the time. And we live in that same uh, situation where these, these uh, items here, these five solas, as well as many other truths of the Christian faith, are under attack or simply being ignored uh, because people don't uh, want to hear them. Or in many cases, maybe they've, there, are, there are many uh, in the Christian world that look at these things and um, wonder about them and why, why they're all alone. How can they all be alone if there's five of them and what does that mean? Or uh, some even in the evangelical world that just uh, would claim to be and likely are uh, believers, but they look at these things and, and uh, find reasons uh, to deny them or to think that they're dangerous uh, because of their caricatures of these things. So it's important to understand the historical context. <clears throat> so let's think about the Reformation very quickly. This argument of grace versus works was not new even then. The church father Augustine debated this issue with the heretic Pelagius. Anybody ever heard of these guys? Yeah, okay, good. Um, Pelagius insisted that humans were born in a state of innocence and denied that human beings possess a sin nature denied that human beings were subject to what theologians term original sin, sin that, that uh, we have inherited from the sin of Adam and Eve, uh, both shown by our propensity to sin and our actual committing thereof. Uh, Pelagius denied all of that and was rather radical at the time. He was often condemned, rightly so, as a heretic. But there were those that were not quite ready to get rid of all of Pelagius' uh, thoughts, they uh, tended to adopt a sort of a median position that uh, came to be known as semi-Pelagianism. Anybody heard these words, these terms? Good. Semi-Pelagianism allows, I know I said I wasn't going to be super academic, but I got to use the terms that are there. Okay, so here we go. Semi-Pelagianism allows for a fallen human nature but holds on to the idea that the human race is still good enough to be able to lay hold of the grace of God through an act of the unredeemed human will. Let me say that again. Semi-Pelagianism does believe that the nature is fallen, but uh, still holds on to the idea that Essentially, we all have this little spark of goodness and it's just enough for us to be able to hold on to the gospel and reach out for it um, on, on our own before we are redeemed, before we are regenerated. Now, take the term semi-Pelagianism away 
And think about what I just said. Do you think that this idea is still alive and well today? Absolutely. It's generally what we call today evangelical Christianity. It is largely semi-Pelagian. It holds on to the idea that, yeah, we know our sins are fallen, so we need to confess, we need to repent, we need to turn from our sins. We get that. We need to be made new creatures. But somehow, in, the fi- in spite of the, the fact that we have all of that serious deficit in our condition, we're still able to reach out to God on our own before he works in us. And that is the foundation of much that goes on in the name of evangelism that's appealing to that fallen nature to respond to God when the Bible says that you can't. So we got a problem. It's not a new it's not an old problem. This is a vital in your face today problem. Now I'm very thankful to brother Wayne for uh, leaving a message uh, uh, on my phone asking me if I'd ever heard of something and uh, I had but it had been a lot of years since I even thought about it. So I'm really grateful. Um, he uh, asked if I'd ever heard of the Council of Orange. Anybody heard of the Council of Orange? One, two, three, four. Okay, yes, you, you can be bold. Okay. Um, this has nothing to do with citrus. Okay. Orange, well, I don't know, orange, because it's a city in France. And in 529... The church, and this would be 529, this is the church that's under Rome, gathered in the city of, I just have to say it, Orange. Okay. They gathered to debate this issue. This issue that had arisen out of this debate between um, Augustine or Augustine and Pelagius. Now, when you read through the canons that they came up with, the statements that they came up with, there's, they're rather enamored with the saving properties of the actual saving properties of baptism. Um, that's a whole different uh, <laughs> subject to talk about. However, they did agree with Augustine against Pelagius. Now, you can go and search on this. I really encourage you to do so. It's it's fascinating read. In 529, they're saying things that sound really current. There's 25 of these statements, 20 or canons of the uh, of, of of Orange. Um, they're, but they're not something that most believers know anything about. But in the history of theology, they are important. Because, for no other reason, they provide a stark contrast to later Roman thought that tends to embrace the idea that man can find favor with God by their own actions. I think Luther doubtless had the Council of Orange in his mind when he stated there at Worms, when he was called there to be on trial, that popes and councils do often contradict themselves. Because early in Roman, uh, the Roman church's history, they were holding to a pretty strong orthodox biblical understanding of grace versus works. 
Consider Canons 18 and 19, for example. Canon 18. That grace is not preceded by merit. Okay? Recompense, they said, is due to good works if they are performed. In other words, God, God tells us in his word, you know, you, you do well, you'd be blessed, and so on. They recognize that. But they say, but grace to which we have no claim precedes them in a, to enable them to be done, precedes the good works to enable them to be done. In other words, even the good works that you do are because of God's grace that he gave you ahead of time. Doesn't sound anything like what Roman theology would become. Canon 19. That a man can be saved only when God shows mercy. Human nature, they say, even though it remained in that sound state in which it was created, could by no means save itself without the assistance of the Creator. They're saying that even Adam in his perfection was dependent upon the grace of God. From start to finish. Hence, since man cannot safeguard his salvation without the grace of God, which is a gift, how will he be able to restore what he has lost without the grace of God? Pretty strong evangelical, uh, in the proper sense of the word, uh, statements. Now, think about this, keeping the history lesson going. Think about this statement from the Council of Trent, which was in 1543, a little over a hundred years, a thousand, sorry, a hundred, <laughs> a little over a thousand years later, okay, Trent followed after uh, some of the, the, the height of the Protestant Reformation. It was an attempt to answer the reformers and try to make themselves look good. And you're going to hear that as I read this. They're going to say lots of neat sounding stuff. Um, this is... Uh, from the Council of Trent's Decree on Justification. <clears throat> Different sections in there. Um, one of the things they said is, none of those things, and this, uh, this is a great sounding statement, none of those things that precede justification, whether faith or works, merit the grace of justification. For... If by grace it is not now by works, otherwise, as the Apostle says, grace is no more grace. They're quoting Romans 11.6. And that's a great statement. Sounds wonderful. Then they go on to say, if anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, so that he understands that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification... And that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the action of his own will. Let him be anathema. I was reading on a website uh, where I found these quotes. It was a Catholic website. And they were really trying to do a little song and dances that anathema doesn't mean anathema. And really nobody's under anathema. And Protestants aren't anathema for believing this. It's not really anathema. It just sort of means that they're wrong. And... It's like, no, anathema doesn't mean that. However, in our postmodern society, we want to redefine words in order to suit our, ourselves. Um, I'll talk more about that in a minute. Commenting on 
on James 2.24, which has to do, that's that faith and works discussion that James is having there, right? Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. By good works, they say, we, quote, increase. By good works, we increase in that justice received through the grace of Christ and are further justified, unquote. Now, I hope you're follow, you tracked with that. I know you're not reading it in front of you. But I hope there are little red flags going off in your head going, wait a minute, they said one thing here, and now they're saying a different thing here. And maybe I'm not too sure about exactly how all that works out, but something is rotten in Denmark. hope nobody's Danish. You're right. <laughs> But the heart of this, at the heart of this confusion is the Roman Catholic understanding of justification. This is a huge point to get, and I'm going to try not to belabor it. But justification, uh, according to what, what we see in the scriptures, is an act of God. It is a declaratory act whereby God declares us for the sake of Jesus Christ to be righteous in our standing before God. For Rome, justification is about making you righteous and infusing righteousness in, into you so that you have now a store of righteousness that you did not have before. It's the difference between the Protestant understanding of imputation, the, the, the righteousness of Christ credited to our account, and infusion, the righteousness of Christ infused into us. Their error is, basically what that amounts to is confuses justification with sanctification. Theologians like to talk about difference in the way that God works in a couple ways. One is he does an, an act, which is a, a point in time thing, or he does a work. Justification is an act. It is a moment in time when God made a declaration. Sanctification is a work, an ongoing work of God, whereby he continues to work in us, you know, convict us of sin, enable us, encourage us, teach us, all those things so that we, can, we grow along the way and are more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. This error is that um, basically with the infusion of that righteousness with Christ, it's kind of like, uh, all right, all of us have experienced this, um, a slow leak in a tire. This is on my mind because my lawn tractor is doing this. My boat trailer is doing this. My son's car is doing this. And it's... I'm always hauling the air compressor out to put air in. Uh, because if I don't, the air, the, you know, that air will slowly leak out till I have a flat. And, and essentially, this is a gross oversimplification, but essentially, that's the Roman idea of righteousness. You've had this infused. You must maintain it. You must do some other things to keep that righteousness going and in, fee, and, and, and in fact, to add to it. 
so that you can maintain your status before God as they say, be further justified. Because if justification is a work, well, that makes sense. You've got to keep working at it so that you remain justified. This distinction, though, even if it's motivated by the noble goal of trying to urge believers to holy living, which the, the Catholic website I was reading said, yeah, you know, we just believe that, you know, you've got to basically add to your faith works. And it's like, okay. But the problem is, is that the application is, the end goal is so that you can remain saved. And that is the problem. And plus they also treat grace as a verb instead of a noun. Making it very fluid. Subject to all kinds of, 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 of changes that are related to the way that we work in relationship to God. And all of that leads to a different gospel than the one, that faith, that was once for all delivered to the saints. Why? Because you have to keep earning God's graciousness. Now, I know I read Ephesians chapter 2, the classic text on this, but before we get to Ephesians today, I want you to think, first of all, about the words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 1, 6, and 7. I am astonished, he says, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, he says, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And what was that gospel that Paul preached? It's there in Galatians chapter 2, if you want to turn there. Galatians 2, 16 through 21. Paul says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ Jesus, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died to no purpose. This passage exposes Trent's teaching as so much pious-sounding error. It's great to affirm grace, but then to insist that your works are necessary to obtain the grace of justification actually denies grace. Saying that you have to have works to add to faith so that you live in love before God, that's the wording of that article I read. It ignores Paul's statement that he died to the law so that he could live to God. And Paul is not an antinomian, someone who is against the law. Far from it. He's asserting that it is Christ's work for and in us that enables us to live acceptably before God. 
Think about the, his words to Titus in Titus chapter 2, where he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. doesn't sound like Paul is saying, yeah, we don't have to have works. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all un, uh, sorry, from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so guided by Paul's thought, the Reformers' views of grace developed to correct the Romanist error. Martin Luther stated, He who does not receive salvation purely through grace, independently of all good works, certainly will never secure it. Notice uh, from John 3.16, he goes on to say, All who believe have eternal life. That being true, believers certainly are just and holy without works. Works uh, contribute nothing to justification. It is effected or brought about by pure grace richly poured out upon us. uh, A uh, writer, theologian, pastor named Guy Waters summarized, uh, this is on a Ligonier.org article, in a little Ligonier.org article, said the reformers maintained that the sinner is saved by the grace of God, his unmerited favor alone. This doctrine means that nothing the sinner does commends him to the grace of God and that the sinner does not cooperate with God in order to merit his salvation. Salvation from beginning to end is the sovereign gift of God to the unworthy and undeserving. God, I love this statement, God is no one's debtor not least in the matters of salvation. And then he cites 1 Corinthians 4 and Romans 11. This is the difference between, uh, here's a couple other 25-cent words, monergism and synergism. Uh, The jism part um, has to do with work. Um, Monergism has to do with God working alone, mono as opposed to synergism, which insists in the semi-Pelagian idea that we cooperate or work with God to bring our salvation. And that can take all kinds of forms, whether it's prayers, whether it's marching down an aisle, whether it's reading certain things, going to church, whatever other works might be. Now, let's take our attention to Ephesians chapter 2. When we think about this gift of God, this grace of God, as Paul uh, lays things out here, that grace becomes even more incredible when we consider what our former state was. Verses 1 through 7 of this passage focus on the mercy of God, where God is doing good things for us um, uh, in spite of what we deserve, uh, mercy in a simplistic definition, a simple definition, you could uh, define it this way, that you don't get what you deserve. And what did we deserve? Look at our condition. Verse 1, you're dead in trespasses and sins. 
You have no ability. You have no light. You have no spark of human goodness. You've got nothing. When you serve sin, you walk by the world's standards in which you once walked following the course of this world. Verse 2. When you serve sin, you serve the adversary. You, You follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. And when you serve sin, in verse 3, you live according to whatever you want to do. You, you set the rules. You set the guidelines of what you think you should do. But that's serving your sinful nature. And when you serve sin like this, you're subject to the wrath of God. That's a pretty hopeless thing. But our God redeems us from that service of sin. And he does, we, we don't deserve it. But He shows His mercy to us. As He mercifully works to save you, He redeems you and He makes you alive with Christ because of His love. Look at verses 4 and 5. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Paul says to the Roman church, similar kind of thought. That God shows His love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We had nothing. We were hopeless. We had nothing within ourselves to which we could cling. There's no merit of ours that was sufficient. But God, by His grace, uh, by His mercy, uh, did refrained from judging us as we deserved. And instead... That transitional phrase there, by grace you've been saved. He graciously, then, if mercy is about what uh, uh, not getting what we deserve, grace is about um, getting what we don't deserve. More on that in a minute. Came across this wonderful um, thought from a sermon on this passage by Martin Lloyd-Jones, where he said, We come, therefore, to this inevitable conclusion. We are Christians at this moment. Only and entirely by the grace of God. The apostle was never tired of saying this. What else could he say? As he looked back on that blaspheming Saul of Tarsus who hated Christ and the Christian church and did his best to exterminate Christianity, breathing out threatenings and slaughter, as he looked back at that and then looked at himself as he now was, what could he say but this? I am what I am by the grace of God and I must Uh, I am what I am by the grace of God. And then Lloyd-Jones says, and I must confess that it passes my comprehension to understand how any Christian looking at himself or herself cannot say anything different if when you get on your knees before God, you do not realize that you are a debtor to mercy alone. I confess I do not understand you. There is something tragically defective either in your sense of sin or in your realization of the greatness of God's love. When we talk about grace alone, it's not just a theological concept. It's about the absolute staggering uh, thought that our God redeems us when we are in this condition. Lost, rebellious, dead, and yet He shows mercy to us. And not just to, to... to, to, to save us, to make us alive in this life. But he goes on in his mercy. He gives us a place in his heavenly kingdom because of Christ. 
And we see that in verses 6 and 7. He raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In chapter 1 of Ephesians, Paul said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Our Lord has not held back anything when we deserved. I won't even say that we deserve nothing. We did deserve something. We deserve wrath. We deserve condemnation. We deserve to be cast out. We deserve no inheritance. We deserve no favor, no blessing, nothing of any value or goodness or kindness or love. And yet our God in mercy saved us. He did all of this so that his children might be trophies of his grace for all eternity. But again, the other side of this coin is not just not giving us what we deserve out of his mercy, but in grace. He mercifully works to save us, but he also graciously works to save you as he gives you what you don't deserve. What are the things that, that God gives to us uh, in, this, in addition to our, our status and our, our safety in him and the Lord Jesus Christ? We see in verses uh, 8 9 and 10 these wonderful things that God uh, gives us by his grace familiar verses to all of us for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them first of all God graciously shows you favor by granting faith. By granting faith. Um, I've heard people, evangelicals, try to talk about, yes, God's very gracious, and then faith is my work. That I, My response to him. Uh, it, there is a response in faith, absolutely. So there's a partial truth there. But what it ignores is what this verse teaches us. Um, that the grace that God shows to us is not just in declaring us just. It's granting us faith in the first place because it's God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And indeed, the grammar of this verse, uh, if you slow down just a little bit and look at it, um, particularly if you've got any familiarity with Greek at all, you'll see that the this, this is not your own doing, is not about grace which is the way it's often interpreted. Well, that's obvious. I mean, if grace means anything, it means that it's not of your own doing because you, it's grace. You're a recipient of it. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. The faith is the issue, and the this refers back grammatically to faith. But the faith is not of your own doing. That faith is the gift of God. John, in his uh, gospel, chapter 1, records these words, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
It's interesting that in Ephesians 2, when you read there, by grace you have been saved, that have been saved, have been redeemed, uh, have been delivered. It's in the perfect tense, which uh, means that is a, a one-time moment, an act in a moment with ongoing results is what the perfect tense means. It doesn't mean a repetition of the work. It doesn't mean that you have to be saved over and over again. It doesn't mean that when you come to the Lord's table, um, as the, the Roman um, perversion of the Lord's table that makes the Mass a sacrifice every week. Why? Well, because you've got to redo it all the time. Uh, justification, uh, like conversion, is a momentary act with ongoing results. Um, not a re repeated act uh, or an act that needs to be repeated. He grants us that faith. He grants us the ability to believe. That's what regenera regeneration makes us alive so that as he moves upon us and effectually calls us, we then may respond by the gift that he gives us of faith. We'll talk more about faith next week, God willing. But uh, not only does he show you favor by granting faith, he shows you favor by placing you back on the right track. Verse 10 again. Um, we're, we have nothing to boast about. Um, do we need to go back and look at the early part of this when we looked at the, our condition prior to redemption? We've got nothing to boast about. Way off the beaten track of God's righteousness and His desires for His people. <clears throat> we were created to bring glory to Him, to honor Him, to serve Him in our sin. Obviously, we don't do that. But our Lord is not content to leave us um, uh, on our own to try to figure it out and try to improve upon His grace. He's the one who puts us back on the right track because we're His workmanship. We're created for good works. God prepared those ahead of time that we would walk in them. He didn't leave it to chance. He shows you favor by putting you back on that right track. Take a look real quickly at Colossians chapter 1. Now you could read all of basically starting in verse 3 down through, well, 12, 14. But I want to read just three verses here um, at 9. And so, from, uh, beginning at verse 9 of Colossians 1. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And it goes on to say, giving thanks. You're intended to honor God by doing what is good for God's glory. His grace is what renews your ability to properly show whose child and whose servant you are. This is God's grace. He doesn't, he doesn't just get us to um, um, I'll, I'll use this, a level playing field, which is the Roman idea. We're fallen. We're down here. He gets us saved up here. And then the rest of it 
we have to do the rest to get to heaven. Gives us righteousness. You've got to keep the air going in that tire so you can get all the way up there. Protestant understanding, which we believe goes back to the apostolic understanding, is that we're in the basement. And when we're redeemed, we are secure. We don't have to... It doesn't mean that we don't get to a point, you know, there's a change in our life, absolutely, where we need to work. But this space here is about service and gratitude, not earning the ultimate. And that, in a nutshell, is the difference. Consider the following scriptural statements. From Romans 3. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Also from Romans 3. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Romans 5. Christ died for us while we were still ungodly. Luke 19. Jesus said he came to seek and to save the lost. None of these statements, and many more like them, leave any room for man's works or initiative to either earn or remain in salvation. It is our Lord's gracious work from beginning to end. And in fact, we need to take what Paul said to the Galatians really seriously. This could not be more forceful from Galatians 5. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Salvation, uh, this is a quote uh, from an article. It didn't give the author's name. There was an article from a, a, um, a website called compellingtruth.org on what is the significance of sola gratia. They said, salvation is by grace alone because he is the one who created us, provided a way of salvation for us, seeks us, gives us faith, changes us when we when we do believe in him, empowers us to live for him, keeps us in his love, and will take us to be with him for eternity. At no point do our good works provide salvation. This is why sola gratia was not only an important belief during the Protestant Reformation, but remains essential to Christian faith and living today. Unquote. May God grant us to not strive with our flesh to think that we somehow have to uh, earn our salvation or earn our sanctification or earn our glorification. Those things are all given to us by the grace of Christ alone. Let us rest in that grace, rejoice in that grace, and live gratefully in that grace in the works that God has prepared beforehand for us of holiness, righteousness, and those things that are honoring to His name. Because if if anything else should, if, if there's nothing else here, and there's five wonderful, four wonderful things here that lead us to Soli Deo Gloria, but sh- surely we should give all glory to our God for the grace that He so freely pours out on us for His own sake and the sake of His Son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to not strive to be justified by the law or, to, or improve our justification, which is impossible. 
once justified, your declaration is perfect. It needs no improvement. Lord, I pray that we would live gratefully in holiness before you to bring glory to your name, trusting in your, your favor and your strengthening to enable us to fulfill your will in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.